The Guardian. As we move through this second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, with yet more lockdown restrictions, the virus is once again wreaking havoc on our daily lives. In its persistence and far-reaching consequences, the pandemic is a public health emergency without parallel in modern times. But whilst we may not have seen a virus cause this much pain and disruption before, could there be historical parallels with its psychological impact? And how might these inform how we adapt to live with the virus? I was struck at the beginning of the pandemic that we were told repeatedly that these events were unprecedented. And yet I could see that there were clear parallels in the way that people were behaving under the threat of bombs compared with the way they behave under the threat of virus. From 1940, the UK faced nightly bombing raids that killed tens of thousands and forced the majority of the population to change their daily lives. And just like with COVID-19, bombardment experienced during the bombing fluctuated and came in peaks. So does the story of Britain during the Blitz provide any helpful insights into the psychological impact of COVID-19? Edgar Jones is from King's College London's Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, and he's written a paper in The Lancet comparing the psychological impact of the Blitz and COVID-19. We looked at the numbers, we looked at the statistical evidence that was gathered, and we could see that there was more to this than just an interesting historical comparison. I'm The Guardian's science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Edgar, hi, thanks for joining us. Hello, hi, thanks for inviting me. What exactly is the story of the Blitz that you go on to compare with covid Well, the Blitz was sustained bombing of London, really from September through till midway in 1941. So people on a nightly basis could expect bombs falling out of the sky, very heavy casualties at the beginning of September, four or five hundred people a night killed. And so it was an opportunity to look at how a cross-section of the population exposed to external threat coped and managed this awful traumatic situation. And as that blitz began, what was the thinking at the time on how the public might respond to the kinds of emergency measures that you know, would have impacted so heavily on their lives? Well, the government ignored all the pre-war evidence that people were actually inherently resilient and would be able to cope. It assumed that there would be a deep shelter mentality, that people, as soon as they saw killed and wounded, would want to go away and hide to preserve their lives at all costs. And do you see any parallels in the common assumptions of public attitudes around the pandemic as the pandemic was starting to kick in? I think the government and its advisors may have failed to take proper note of what was happening in China and Italy. They studied papers which suggested from the swine flu epidemic that there had been significant differences in the way people behave in different nations. But what really emerges is that people are pretty much the same in their responses and that the differences you detect between different nations and cultures are more nuances than fundamental. And the government made that same mistake in the run-in to the Blitz. In 1939, the government had really good evidence from Shanghai, from Ethiopia, from 
Barcelona, that when people were bombed, they didn't panic, they weren't overtly fearful, they, they were concerned and anxious, but they did appropriate things. And there would have been a lot of evidence in China and Italy, which would have informed the government uh, this year how people might behave during a lockdown. And there may be that the government delayed the lockdown because they thought that the people would be reluctant to do it, and you, you only had one chance. What they would have found if they'd looked at evidence from the Blitz is that people actually would prefer to shelter in their own homes rather than go to a communal shelter or somewhere else. And they would even trade safety in order to remain in their own flats and houses. During the Blitz, we saw a lot of collective responsibility around things like blackout rules. And I wonder if there are any parallels with the COVID pandemic. Yeah, collective responsibility is really important. Without the blackout, that was the main thing that everyone had to do. You would light up the city and the bombers would have a ready target. Collective responsibility for us is wearing a mask, hand washing, social distancing. And if people don't do that, the virus will spread. And people will do these things if they trust the government that's telling them to do them. And I think the people felt that the British government in 1940-41 had their interests at heart. And the British government was also big enough to recognise when it got things wrong and had to modify the policy. It had failed to understand the importance of home, but it introduced the Morrison shelter in March 1941, which was a self-assembly kit that you could keep in your home and you didn't have to go out to you know, risky shelters elsewhere. So governments have to be alert to people's preferences. With the COVID-19 lockdowns that we've, we've had, people talk about a Dominic Cummings effect of people being sort of less willing to observe the rules. Now they've seen someone in power basically escape punishment for breaking the rules, if, according to some. Um, I wonder if that has any parallels with anything that happened during the Blitz. I don't know if as the Blitz went on, we saw that kind of thing happen as well. During the Blitz, it was very important that the government and government figures and even the royal family were seen to be directly involved in the conflict. So Churchill would make her regular visits to the east end of London, to places that had been bombed, so that he could be seen at least attempting to empathise and understand with their experience. And I know the government was greatly relieved when Buckingham Palace was bombed and they could film uh, the king and queen stepping over piles of rubble. Because until then, a lot of people felt that the rich were better protected and they weren't sharing in the dangers. So I think for government regulations and policies to be followed, People have to trust their governments. They have to feel that their government is taking risks equally and genuinely has their welfare at heart. They can't do it in a way where it's window dressing. It has to be sincere. You'll hear people say of that generation that lived through the Second World War that there was you know, this sense of togetherness in the general public during the conflict and, and that that attitude is missing from society now that there's something more individualistic going on. I mean, so, I mean, can we really compare the behaviours of these two societies? 
Well, I suppose the big difference is that social gathering then was an encouraged protective factor. On the outbreak of war, the government closed by decree uh, dance halls, cinemas and theatres. But within a couple of weeks, they realised this was eroding morale. And they opened them, they reopened them. And the way people boosted their morale, kept their resilience, was by going to dance halls, going to the theatre, going to pubs, meeting. And we don't have that opportunity. Our, Our collective responsibility is to socially distance. So I think what that did is it forced people to be creative because social bonding is a very powerful mechanism for reinforcing determination. So people create social groups online. They have quiz nights, virtual drink nights, game nights. So in a way, what what, what we've been forced to do is recreate those bonds, but in an online forum. And I I guess it doesn't work as well, uh, and it will leave some people socially isolated. But you can see a similar pattern of people wanting to gather support and encouragement from those around them. I think a lot of people will agree that we're into a second wave of infections in this country now. But I think people might be surprised that there was a second wave of bombings in the Blitz. Tell us a bit about that. What was happening then? Yeah, uh, 1944 appeared to be a good year if you lived in London. There was some bombing at the beginning of the year. You had D-Day and you were thinking the war's come to an end. We we can relax now. It's over. It's just a question of time. And then a few weeks after D-Day, out of the sky, pilotless rockets exploding throughout London. And suddenly, thinking the war's over, you've got death and destruction around you. And the government responds with absolute silence because they fear that any news will terrify people. And there's a real delay before the government starts to explain what these weapons are, how they work, and people begin to adjust but there's a significant drop in morale and people start paying to leave London. And there is real concern that resilience has been dented. People who are inherently vulnerable became really quite traumatised and a lot of them broke down and were admitted to hospital or they moved, if they could, out of the city. The majority of the population, however, had sufficient experience of bombing and resilience and understanding of the risks that they were able to cope because they knew that although these new weapons were coming in, London's an enormously big place and the chance of them being hit are very small. So once they had some more information about what these rockets were, they could adapt and they adopted a sort of fatalism. They said, well, the chance of me being hit is very, very small There's nothing I can do to protect myself, so I'm just going to carry on as normal. I'm going to trust to luck. Does that provide any insight into the sort of relationship between anxiety versus the actual damage of those second waves? I think people always need a level of anxiety because anxiety can motivate you to do adaptive things. If the anxiety gets too high, if it's free-floating or out of control, then it's not going to help you and you're probably going to suffer from a breakdown and maybe a hospital admission. So the anxiety, the key thing for the government in that period was contain the anxiety and keep it in a manageable proportion where people could use it in a useful way. And they finally did that. 
so that people knew that this was a limited time period and they just had to hang on for a few more months. And do you think at least that's one lesson that the government has learned in this pandemic, that you don't cover up information that that people need? Or, or, Or have we continued to make similar mistakes? I think they've definitely learned that you need to engage people through a little bit of worry. People have to be worried before they change patterns of behaviour. And they've recognised that they need to make all the evidence available that goes to SAGE, to the public. So now the public can read everything, all the government scientific studies and reports. So they've got that on board. But they did have a little slip up, I think, with the introduction to the second lockdown, when we had a projection of daily deaths of up to 4,000, which was evoked to rebuke and an apology. So broadly, they're on track. And they, they, they follow these important lessons about accurate information, trustworthy news. And I suppose we don't know yet whether we will be seeing future waves of this, whether we will have future waves and, and future lockdowns after the winter. And during the Blitz, the government sought to sort of normalise the risk from air raids. And I wonder if that taught us anything about how we can sort of teach people to prepare psychologically for this possibility that we may have to lock down several times. This may go on and on a bit, that this may become a part of our our new normal. There is a difference between the Blitz, that in a sense, it's an event with a defined beginning and an end. And COVID, we, we can't be sure when it will be eradicated, whether there'll be a new strain, there'll be new pandemics. But the question of the external threat in the Second World War didn't immediately go away at the end in 1945, because there was a need for a process of coming to terms with what everyone had been through and building a new future that was safer against war. So there's a kind of a parallel that you have to understand the threat come to terms with it, and then work out ways in the future that you can minimise it. It's noticeable that many more systems are in place for the second lockdown. In hospitals, there's lots of PPE, there's Perspex screens, dentists are now still remaining open, schools are still open, universities are teaching. So there's good evidence that we've adapted. And I think these adaptions and skills that we've learned, we can reapply in the future a sort of range of coping mechanisms, skills, interventions that we can continue to modify when no doubt we will be presented with very similar external threats. So just uh, given where we are with the pandemic at the moment, at this stage in the pandemic, is there a particular lesson from your sort of reading of the of the blitz that you find particularly helpful to to coping with what we're all we're all going through the lesson i would draw is the importance of accurate scientific evidence and you can't get that immediately it takes time to generate and it's important that scientists are engaged at the very highest levels of government and the administration so that you get high quality decision making clemenceau said after the First World War, war is too serious a matter to be left to the military and the generals. So for me, the pandemic is too important to be left just to the politicians. 
Edgar, many thanks for joining us on Science Weekly. It's really fascinating to hear what you made of that comparison with the Blitz. Thank you for asking me. That's all today from Science Weekly. Thanks again to Edgar Jones for joining me. We'll be back next week for more episodes. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.